This is episode number 48 with Scott Greenberg. Welcome to the Path to Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Wes Barefoot, where it's my mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs and existing business owners take control of their lives and create freedom for themselves through business ownership. Each episode, I'll be exploring the strategies and tactics of other successful entrepreneurs that have created freedom in their own lives while sharing what I'm learning along my own path to freedom. I'm glad you're here. Let's drop in. Before we drop into the episode, a quick message from our sponsor, 919 Marketing. I've worked with 919 Marketing for years and there's no one I trust more with my marketing needs in any of our businesses. I've worked with them in our franchise businesses, in my consulting business. I've worked with them on the franchisor side. And I love working with 919 because they take the time to listen. They take the time to understand what it is I'm looking to accomplish through my marketing, who I'm trying to reach, and then they help me put a plan together to do just that. I've worked with tons of marketing companies over the years, and too often it's a one-size-fits-all approach, but not with 919 marketing. In addition to that, they've developed some amazing technology called 919 Insights, franchising's first and only AI-powered analytics platform. With 919 Insights in place, 919 Marketing can identify the exact topics that matter to your franchise candidates and provide the specific roadmap to help your brand become the highest ranking and most trusted resource when they're searching for answers. So if you're ready to start getting better results from your marketing, and if you want a free demo of 919 Insights, reach out to Graham Chapman at 919-459-8157 or send them an email at gchapman at 919marketing.com to schedule your free demo today. So whether you're a franchisor, a franchisee, or just getting started in your first franchise business, make sure to check out 919 Marketing and tell them West Barefoot sent you. Now. Let's drop into the episode. Hey, what's up, P2F listeners? My guest today is Scott Greenberg. Scott's a fascinating guy with a very unique perspective. Scott's a former multi-unit franchisee with Edible Arrangements, where he's won numerous awards in both Best Customer Service as well as Manager of the Year. And these are awards out of thousands of locations worldwide. Scott had a very successful run with Edible Arrangements, also had a very successful exit from that, where he now spends the majority of his time giving keynote presentations and teaching courses to corporations, associations, and franchise systems. He's the author of the book, The Wealthy Franchisee, Game-Changing Steps to Becoming a Thriving Franchise Superstar, but as we discuss in this episode, the book is for any business owner or aspiring entrepreneur. It does not just apply to franchisees. So many of the principles that Scott talks about in the book are applicable to any business owner 
or even anyone considering getting into business for themselves. So this episode's packed full of great information. Scott talks about, you know, what does it mean to actually be wealthy as a franchisee or a business owner? Spoiler alert, it's a little bit more than just uh, how financially successful you are. But he also gives tons of practical advice from both his own experience and experience of clients that he's coached and mentored over the years as to what it takes to structure your business so that it's performing as best as it possibly can. So you don't want to miss a second of this episode. Let's go ahead and drop in with the wealthy franchisee, Scott Greenberg. For those that may not be familiar with you, give us a little more background on yourself. Maybe start by telling us what you do today, but then give us some of the background in terms of how you got to this point. I help franchise business owners grow their business. So franchisors bring me in to kind of close the performance gap among their franchisees. And then franchisees work with me directly to get their business from where it is to where it wants to be. So right. that is what I do today. Um, it's not what I set out to do when I graduated college. Sure. Uh, I don't think anybody when they're young says, when I grow up, I want to get in franchising. Usually people no. end up there. Yeah. Um, so I'll share with you my journey. So when I got out of college, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so okay. uh, I got into film school at NYU and was off to a great start, but I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. So I to, I, yeah, so it was a huge dramatic experience. And so I had to drop out of school and spend about a year going through treatment. Oh, wow. And one of the things they always taught us in film school was to, number one, write about what you know, and number two, really pay attention to the human condition, how people seem to think, how they manage their feelings, and how they interact. Really focus on the people. That way, when you tell your stories, it can seem authentic. Mm. So um, I was the youngest person going to the film school at the time. I remember thinking, wow, I wish I had some more interesting life experience to draw from to inform my stories. Well, be careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> So yes, yeah, third semester is diagnosed with cancer. I go mm. back to San Diego. So I'm in cancer treatment and I'm it's in this big public place. There's like maybe 20 people at the time getting chemotherapy. Mm. And here's what I observed. Some of these people were really struggling during treatment, really just in a bad mood, were snapping at their family, arguing with nurses, really suffering. And then I saw other people who were just as sick, same circumstances, but who were joking and laughing and really enjoying those moments. And some of those people were dying, but on those days they were living. Mm. And so the curious storyteller in me started wondering, why is it in pretty similar circumstances, people are getting such different results, having such sure. different experiences of the same thing. Little did I know that line of questioning would years later um, be paralleled uh, in the franchise world. Yeah. So I got through it. A friend of mine puts on a conference and asked me to come and give a talk about my experience with cancer and how it applied to leadership. But I ended up putting emphasis not so much on my story, but on the adversity of the people in the audience. Well, that worked well. I got three more invitations to speak after that. And for 30 years now, groups have been inviting me to come and speak to their audiences. Used to be just about resilience and overcoming adversity. Then it became peak performance. And then it became leadership. So it really kind of evolved. Uh, and I got you know better and smarter. But one day I'm giving a presentation on leadership and I look out at all these executives in my audience and realize they've got a lot more experience in actual leadership than I do. And that didn't sit well with me. So mm. I decided I better do something to get some more real world leadership experience. And that's when I saw an airline uh, ad, um, airline magazine ad for edible arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of a franchise because you have all these people doing the, running the same business, but getting different results. And I yeah. figured not only could I make some money doing it, but it'd be a good laboratory for me to really 
dive deeper in the real world about what it takes to perform at a higher level. So uh, I bought my first um, franchise, built it from the ground up. Um, it was a struggle for, you know, in the beginning, but with that curiosity, um, always focusing on the concepts, not just on the money, mm -hmm. we got smart real quick and got better and better. And then I ended up buying a struggling location. We turned it around. So it was really successful. We won awards and made money. And I started getting invitations to speak to other franchise systems, to their franchisees about what they can do. Um, and Wes, a big part of my process whenever I'm brought in to speak is to interview as many people as possible beforehand. Mm -hmm. I probably talk to more individual franchisees than anyone else in the world because yeah, I bet. I've done this so many thousands of people and I've surveyed them and interviewed them and I started to notice some patterns. Mm -hmm. You hear the same complaints across all these brands. Yep. But when you talk to their top people who I call wealthy franchisees, you see what they all have in common. You get to the truth about their success. So I ended up writing a book about that and um, that's what my presentations are about. So I help typical franchisees replicate the same thought patterns and behaviors and practices as wealthy franchisees so they themselves can become wealthy running your business. So that's, that's my story and that's what I'm up to. Well, it's awesome and, and it's an incredible story. Um, very inspiring, but you know, it's interesting because like you said, most people don't, you know, as they're growing up, aspire to be a franchisee or get involved in franchising. I mean, you know, most of the people I meet in franchising, they somehow or another fell backwards into it. But once they get into it, they tend to stay in some capacity in franchising. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, the driving motivator for you to start a franchise is very different than in my experience why, you know, most people are motivated to start a franchise. A lot of times it's that, you know, they're burned out, you know, working in corporate America or they're, uh, you know, transitioning, they've been let go or something of this nature. Um, you did it. It sounds like almost more for uh, research purposes and real life experience to complement what sounds like was already a pretty successful speaking career. And then through that, you kind of carved out this niche in coaching franchisees to be more successful. And, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, for me, that's the real payoff. And again, it's not that I'm totally altruistic and I just want to be out there helping the world. I do. Look, I'm as greedy as the next person, but I feel like the way I can make the most money, the way I can you know, achieve my materialistic goals, that kind of thing, is by putting as much value out into the sure. world as possible. Um, yeah. That's how I can best take care of my family. Having said that, when I asked my wife if I can do this, it wasn't like I said, hey, it'd be a great experiment for me to learn. It's like, I had to say, no, we can, we can actually make some money doing right. that. We'll, we'll make some money in the process. It's not charity work here that I'm setting out to do. <laughs> right, right. So, Rich, yeah. uh, right. So, I, I certainly wanted to make money doing it, but I think having this, al this alternative focus really gave me a different kind of perspective that proved to be very useful. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, because you bring up a good point. If you're speaking to executives and, you know, giving them advice on leadership and, you know, what can make them more successful than, you know, maybe their peers or things of that nature, it, it makes sense that it would be helpful to have some of that real life experience. I equate it to, you know, it, it hit me at some point in business school that, you know, most of my professors were lifelong educators. They were teaching marketing, but they'd never actually worked for a company doing marketing. And once I kind of, once that dawned on me, it, uh, it, it, you know, I don't know, I, I guess I kind of lost some, some respect for them in some way, you know, compared to the professors I had that taught based on real life experience, that type of teaching seemed to resonate more with me. So I would imagine that 
you know, after owning your franchise businesses, you were able to use, you know, more of your real life examples and some of the coaching and, and speaking that you're doing. And, uh, you know, I've had a chance to, to, you know, read through the wealthy franchisee book. And so, you know, I know you use a lot of examples from, from your own personal experience in that. I just think that type of, uh, teaching resonates better with people. Whereas when it's more kind of theoretical, it, it, you know, maybe falls on deaf ears. It's true. And, you know, typically in the franchise industry, most of the time you get, um, you know, two kinds of speakers. You get an industry person who really knows the industry, but not necessarily the broader, bigger mm -hmm. life concepts, right? Or you get an outside motivational speaker who, again, has just the bigger concepts, but they really don't know. I mean, like I want, so there's a lot of people from the military who have flown helicopters and airplanes who give presentations and they're all really great. But one time I was you know, the other speaker on the platform was someone who, again, was a military pilot and was talking about some situation where he's in battle and he and the other people in the fuselage are having to, in the cockpit, are having to do these things. And he says, it's kind of like, you know, in your franchise, the way you have to work together. And we're thinking, no. No, it's nothing it, like that, it's, actually. It's really <laughs> nothing like that, right? So you have yeah. a, a, an inner perspective that's too inside of this outer perspective. And so my job is to hopefully bring those larger concepts that really are universal but also bring the credibility of someone who's actually been there, done that, and has really immersed myself among other people who have. So, you know, again, your college professors, they might have been right about everything, but without having done it, the credibility is there. So you're not listening the same way. Yeah. So I do my best to bring both to, you know, all the work that I do. Yeah, well, and, and it makes sense. And, you know, we talked when we first connected about this. I mean, I think what you do, especially being able to kind of look at the bigger picture, as many franchisees as you've talked to and interviewed across, you know, all different types of brands, all different types of industries, you know, that perspective, I think, is so valuable because there are, you know, these commonalities amongst top performers in a franchise system and, and underperformers. And, you know, this is something I talk to the candidates that I work with, you know, especially when they get to the point in their research where they're going to be speaking with other franchisees, I kind of prep them a little bit and say, look, any franchise organization out there is going to have a bell curve, just like any other type of organization. There's always going to be top performers and underperformers and everything in between. What you need to figure out is what are those top performers doing differently from everyone else? And, and do you think you can operate a business in the same fashion that they do so that, you know, you can be positioned to see the same type of success that they are. So, and, and we also talked about the fact that I think franchisees need coaching and a lot of times it's better received when it's someone from outside the organization versus the franchisor, because that can sometimes from a franchisee's perspective, you know, almost come across as, you know, like it's their parent, you know, scolding them for, you know, not, making good enough grades in school or something like that. So uh, I think it's a very needed uh, service that you're providing and, and definitely want to have you talk more about that. And also, you know, what are some of these universal kind of trends that you've, uh, you know, noticed through all of your, your research and your speaking that you've done. But, you know, before we get to that, talk a little bit more, if you don't mind about your experience as a franchisee. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with edible arrangements. I imagine most people listening are, great brand from everything, you know, that I know in terms of their, their business model. How long were you a franchisee? I know you said it sounded like you acquired a, a couple more units after your first one, but you know, how did that experience go? And maybe what were some of the biggest things that you learned in your time being a franchisee? 
I think sometimes for us to really evaluate how good an experience is, like good for us, we need some time away from it. So you can mm-hmm. look back and reflect on it. Um, during the experience, it was a roller coaster. It mm-hmm. was an emotional roller coaster. It was a financial roller coaster. I'd love to c- tell you that I came in, you know, as a motivational speaker and I had some Jedi mind tricks to inspire my employee. You know, believe me, it was a humbling experience and I quickly learned how much I don't know. Sure. Um, you know, I went in there with some pretty high minded ideas. You know, I sat my employees down and said, let's brainstorm our values. And they're like, what? Yeah. Turned huh? out my, my hourly workers, they didn't care how much I knew until they knew that I cared. They didn't care that there was no I in team. For them, that was a comment about spelling. Like, yeah. none of those cliches, <laughs> none of that nonsense mattered. And so I had to start from scratch. And so mm. it was very humbling. I can also tell you that, again, I came in a little bit cocky thinking that I would be able to use these tactics and that would equate to money. But you know what equates to money is when customers walk in, believe that they're getting value and they're paying for that. A lot of things need to happen, you know, marketing and sales and then creating an experience for them. And oh yeah, learning how to actually run an edible arrangements franchise. (laughs) Right, there is that. Yeah, Uh, you know, in a way that's safe, that meets, you know, the health and safety codes Mm. here in Los Angeles. I mean, it's it's complicated, most franchises are. And so there were days where it's like the money was rolling in, I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And then there were days where the bills would start to stack up and I couldn't pay them. I had to triage them to figure out who I was gonna pay and who I wasn't. Yeah. Days I, I celebrated my employees and thanked, you know, thanks God that they were in my life. And the days where I just cursed them, <laughs> wanted to just run away. Um, yeah. I, you know, I experienced, we, we had break-ins and we had a woman who tripped and fell in our lobby. Oh, and goodness. Yeah. We heard from her lawyer and uh-huh. traffic accidents and just all kinds of, you know, crazy things that happen. But then amazing things, people would use our, our services to propose to their girlfriends or yeah. to celebrate these special occasions. Yeah. And we were the sort of the... Um, we serviced Beverly Hills and a lot of Hollywood, so we were sort okay. of the edible arrangements, not just to the stars, but to the studios. So if you ever Very seen cool. one of our arrangements on stage um, or on, in a movie or a TV show, chances are it came from from our store. So that's really was, cool. Yeah, yeah. So it was ups and downs. Looking back, it was incredible. Even the bad stuff, it was good for me to go through to develop my own business skills, my own people skills, understanding the realities of leadership, customer experience the right kind of mindset that it takes to succeed. And it, it got me doing what I do today. So it was a very dense, intense experience for which I'm very grateful. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I can imagine any business owner out there listening to you just kind of nodding their head in agreement because it is, it's a roller coaster and, you know, uh, hopefully you have more good days than bad days, but one thing's for certain is you're going to have those bad days and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and, you know, adjust as you go and, and learn from the mistakes and, and the failures that you have. But I, I agree. I think sometimes you need a little bit of distance from, you know, an experience to realize how good all of it was for you, including, you know, what at the time seemed like a very bad, you know, uh, situation that you may have found yourself in. Wes here. You may have noticed there's a franchising theme to this podcast. And that's because franchising's had a massive impact on my life. And it's the very reason I'm walking my own path to freedom. In fact, one of my companies is a franchise consulting company where I work with people to help them understand franchising and determine if it might be a good fit for them. And if it is something they want to explore, then I help them navigate the entire investigative process and ultimately find a franchise business that's a great match for them. 
you know, the fact of the matter is there are thousands and thousands of franchise businesses out there today. And like anything, there are good ones and there are bad ones. Even out of the many, many great franchise companies, not every one of them would necessarily be a good fit for you. You know, buying a franchise is a huge decision and you don't want to wing it. I've helped many people buy franchise businesses over the years, and my wife and I have bought and own franchises today, and we plan to keep investing in franchise businesses. I love helping people understand this process and help them find a business that's going to be a great fit for them and help them accomplish their goals and ultimately create that freedom in their life that we're all looking for. The best part of all of this is that my services are free to the people I work with, And while I do love to contribute to charities and other great causes, I'm not a nonprofit. I'm compensated by the franchise companies I work with when I introduce them to someone that ends up becoming one of their franchisees. It's very similar to real estate, but with franchises. I have the privilege of working with hundreds and hundreds of the best franchise companies out there across practically every industry. So I can be absolutely confident that when I recommend someone to look at a franchise company, I'm introducing them to a very credible and proven company with a solid business model and great support. So if you think you might be interested in learning more about franchising and seeing if it might be right for you, I'd love to speak with you. Get in touch with me by email at wes at path2freedom.com, path, the number two, frdm.com. And also check out my website at pathtofreedom.com, spelled the same way, where I've got a ton of resources, both franchise and non-franchise related, that will help you start down your own path to freedom. And of course, subscribe to and follow the podcast for more great advice about business ownership. And if you know anyone else that might be interested in speaking with me, please share this podcast with them. Thanks for listening to my shameless plug. Now let's drop back into the episode. How did you end up getting out of the business and, and, uh, you know, what was the reasoning for doing that? Was it that you wanted to, you know, move on to what you're doing now or what did the exit kind of look like? Uh, so there are a few factors and edible arrangements is a great brand. I think they're doing better now than they've ever done. And Mm -hmm. I'm very happy for my friends and colleagues who are still there. I'm Tarek Fareed, the CEO and founder, um, wrote a great testimonial quote that I have in the front of the book. So I was great, but as I was looking at the opportunity and where things were happening at the time, it seemed like a good time to um, move for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons, but also the speaking thing um, was just really starting to happen. I mean, it was happening before, but now in the franchise space, it was yeah. really happening. And I decided that's just where my heart was. That's what I wanted to do when I woke up in the morning. So I decided the timing was right. My stores were valuable. I was able to, you know, make some good money when I sold them. Uh, but more equally important, I then had the time to focus on where my heart really was, which is on sure. you know, helping, helping other people um, run their businesses. So um, that's just what I felt at, at the time. Uh, and, and, you know, more specifically, there are a number of reasons. But the thing, the day I said it's time to sell was when the L.A. City Council said that they were going to increase the minimum wage quite significantly at the time. And I, I think that's fine. I want people to be paid fairly that. But when I broke down the numbers, I just didn't see how we could be profitable on that without raising our prices, which corporate hadn't planned to do. And I finally thought, okay, that's one more issue than I, I care to deal with at this time. So um, it's, it's time to sell. Yeah, no, totally understand. I mean, there's, uh, you know, and I, I occasionally work with people that are, looking at a 
franchise business that's for sale. And sometimes, you know, there's like a negative connotation, like, oh, well, they're, you know, this franchisee selling. So there must be something wrong with the business in general or their locations or something of that nature. And, you know, I try to explain to people, you know, you want to understand the, the owner's reason for selling, but it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's just that, you know, people are kind of ready to start their next chapter. There's, there's any number of reasons that people uh, could sell. So I'm curious, you know, in your experience, was it easier to, do you feel it was easier to sell your businesses because you were part of this larger franchise system versus if you had just had your own independent, what gourmet treat business? Without a doubt. And I know a lot of people who have their own individual business Mm -hmm. and then they convert it to a franchise. Not all businesses are conducive to it, but like, you know, pool works is a client of mine Mm -hmm. and uh, I, you know, a huge percentage of their um, franchisees are people who have their own pool service businesses, but realize that if they work under the pool works brand, that'll help them on the back end when the time comes to sell. So people already, you know, uh, people worldwide know about edible arrangements but they didn't necessarily know about Scott's fruit baskets. Right. And the, <laughs> exactly. and the other thing is they're, you know, the first group of people who came to look at my stores and ultimately who bought it were other edible arrangements, franchisees. Yeah. I was um, curious about that. Yeah. So, well, especially because, you know, my operation was, we, we did well and right. people knew that. And so when I just kind of quite, when I started just putting it out there, like, Hey, I might be open to selling. Suddenly a lot of people came around because they, you know, right. And for me, it was also a better sell because when, you know, normally if you're buying a business, people want to see all your numbers. Well, edible arrangements, my P and L's don't matter to other franchisees. It's like, look, if I run high on labor, that's because I'm an idiot. You know how this business is run. You should right. be asking, what, what am I paying in rent? You know, what are costs that are unique to me? But the other costs, sure. you already know what they are. Look at my sales. And you know, you know, so it was, it was easier conversations to have with prospective buyers who are already in the system. But the short answer to your question is, I think it was way easier by being part of a brand that was well known. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And, and, uh, you know, you see that all the time where, you know, if you're a franchisee and you're interested in selling, like the best place to start is with other franchisees. And to your point, it's usually easier because they understand the business. There's not as much education that has to happen and and there's not preconceived notions that that you know the buyer brings to the table so uh totally agree i was i was curious if uh if that's maybe how you went about it so very cool and congratulations on your success and what sounds like a very uh a very nice exit from edible arrangements and and that as we've already talked about is all kind of led to what you're doing today and the book that you published the wealthy franchisee so um why did you write the book and, and who is the book for? Uh, even though that may be kind of a, a glaringly obvious question, but I'd love to kind of hear, you know, from you where the, the whole premise and concept of, you know, actually writing a book uh, started. Yeah, the writing of the book was the second thing that I did backwards. And when I say that, it's, <laughs> the way most people become professional speakers is they go out and accomplish something and then start speaking about it. Yeah. I had a thing with cancer, but that was pretty much the only thing that kind of launched it. So here I am. I found a way to like, you know, get decent at speaking and convince people to pay me to do it before I had really like built up this huge resume. So I was a speaker sure. yeah. first. Then I started having some business success. Well, so I was giving the presentation. So rather than writing a book and hoping people were going to buy it, I started giving enough presentations that I would get inquiries from franchisees or the franchisors who were bringing me in saying, listen, 
do you have a book? We'll get a copy for everyone or franchisees saying, I want to know more. So okay. yeah. the demand was, was already there. So it was just about meeting that demand and basically taking all this research that I'd done from my own experience and from doing all these interviews with all these franchise brands and what I see these top people have in common and capturing that and organizing the information in a way that makes the most sense to really make a good how-to business book for franchise business owners. So uh, the idea was to meet the demand that was already there. In terms of who it's for, the most obvious one are people who are running franchise businesses who want to get even better. Sure. So there's that. Um, I would definitely say a lot of the kind of people who you work with who are thinking about getting into it and want to know what it takes to be successful. Yeah. Um, Agreed. So, yeah. So that definitely it's there for well. The third group is anybody else who's going to go to Amazon and put down a credit card. They can buy my book too. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Hey, if you, wanna, honestly, if you want to buy it, please do. Here's the thing. It's easily 80, 90% of the book is applicable for all businesses. You know, my background is in franchising. So those are the examples and it's sure. easier to focus on a niche, but the concepts really are much broader. And I've had a lot of people who aren't franchisees who've still told me they've gotten a lot of value from the book. But it's, mainly, it's written mainly for people in the franchise world. Uh, and that's who, uh, that's who I'm hearing from quite a bit these days. Well, and that's why I asked, you know, who is it for? Because as I mentioned, I've had a chance to, I, I read through the digital version that you sent me. And thanks again for that. I did actually order a hard copy and, and have it. So I'm going to, you know, really go through that a little more thoroughly with my highlighter, you know, like I like to do with my hard copy books. But uh, I definitely, you know, kind of picked up on the fact that, you know, this would be good for really any business owner to read. It's not just for franchisees. So I was hoping that you would mention that because I wanted to make sure that anyone listening that maybe doesn't even own a franchise business would, would understand that they could very likely get a lot of value from your book. So, um, and, and I agree. I mean, I think it's something I've, uh, a couple of books that I send people that I work with once they go on to become franchisees. And uh, I really think I might add your book to that mix uh, because I think it, it should be required reading for anyone that uh, is, you know, at that point where they're starting a franchise because they'll, they'll likely avoid a lot of mistakes that many franchisees do mistake, uh, make, you know, as they're starting their business. But, you know, on that note, I mean, how do you define wealthy, right? I mean, is it just monetary success or, you know, what is your definition? What qualifies someone as a wealthy franchisee? It's a very important question that I address in chapter one. Um, obviously, there's a hook in the title, right? Because who doesn't want to be a wealthy franchisee if you're in franchising? Right. Um, and so there are three components to being wealthy in my definition. The first is that one, that it is financial, that you put time into this, you put money into this, you should mm -hmm. expect some ROI, you should expect a return on the investment. The idea is to go to, you know, have sit down and have dinner with more money in your pocket than you had at breakfast. Absolutely. So, Relative to what you invested, we want to make some good money from the business, and that's, that's, that's one thing. But you can have two franchisees, both are making you know, half a million dollars a year from their franchise, if they're fortunate with most concepts. But if one is making that much money working 20 hours a week, and the other one's working 90 hours a week, right. they're hardly the same thing. Yeah. You know, time yeah. is, is precious. We're only going to have less of it. So the second characteristic to be wealthy is that you are in control of your time. You're not a slave to your business. Yes. The franchisees I interviewed who have 50, 60, 70 locations still only have 24 hours in their day. That's right. And they all start off with just one, but they work smart. And the time investment is not reflected in the P&L. So mm -hmm. 
First thing is you're making money. Second is that you're in control of your time. And the third characteristic for being a wealthy franchisee is that you enjoy quality of life, that your life really is better. You wake up in the morning happier and more fulfilled because the business is in it. And I met many franchisees who really can check off all three boxes. So all of my work is about helping franchise business owners not just make money and grow their business, but to do it in a way where they still have a life and they still have quality of life. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the qualifiers, right? So in your definition, you kind of need to be checking all three of these boxes to truly be a wealthy franchisee. It's not just monetary. Uh, you could have a franchisee that's only putting five hours a weekend, but they may not be doing very well monetarily. So they're not wealthy. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, look, even for me, like I never ranked, you know, we ranked many times number one in California, but nationwide for sales, uh, we didn't get that. But I also wasn't working 40 hours a week. My goal was right. to have that business to be learned, but I wanted to be on the road giving presentations. That's where I was still making most of my money. And this business enabled me to do that. So I yeah. had the learning experience, still made plenty of money from it. But more importantly, I still had time to do this other thing that I loved and was also lucrative. So, um, so for me, it was great. So for me, I had enough sales relative to the time that I put in mm -hmm. that hour for hour. It was fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an important, uh, you know, distinction to make and, you know, looking at and kind of calculating, your ROI or, or if you're investigating a franchise, what you think your ROI could be. Um, but, you know, I've, I've seen it as well, you know, and, and we've, you know, been through this as we've built our franchise businesses where, you know, financially the results may be great, but if you then kind of look at how much time you're putting in to get those results, then, you know, maybe the ROI doesn't look so good. Uh, and yeah. for sure you want to, you want to make sure that you're actually enjoying it. Like we've already talked about, you're going to have bad days as a business owner and you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do. Uh, but bigger picture, stepping back from it, you know, you want to be able to say, Hey, I truly enjoy what I'm doing. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, if you're going to take the risk, if you're going to make the investment to get into business for yourself, I mean, I think most people are looking for, you know, better financial results, more freedom and flexibility with their time and, and to be doing something that they enjoy doing. Um, so I, I love it. I actually was, uh, I got a phone call from a, an aspiring franchisee yesterday. He has some financial backing. So he's looking to buy, you know, four or five franchises at, at once, like all within the same brand. Yeah. So we started talking, he's telling me the process that he's going through and he's crunching numbers and he is, um, you know, running data, doing all this, but it's all like very like numbers based, which is hugely important. Finally, I said, what's on what, what is your criteria for evaluating a franchise? Like, what are you looking for? And he got back to all that. He didn't say one word about it, like connecting with his values or something that was fun or something, you know, or like how he wanted to spend his time. Yeah. And he's just looking at it as just something numerical. And I applaud him. He's a lot more sophisticated than most people who buy a franchise. But it, what's going to happen is if he doesn't take those things into consideration, once he's there and is actually dealing with hourly employees, because he's thinking quick service restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Which if you have experience there, that is hard draining work. Absolutely. And high turnover. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on that like you're going to feel that business. And so I said, listen, keep crunching your numbers, but you got to search your soul a little bit too. Yeah, to definitely. Make sure that this thing that's taking your time isn't going to take your soul. Well said. And uh, yeah, it's, it's important. And, and a lot of people I think do overlook 
those aspects of it. And, and to your, I mean, you said it, the numbers are important, right? I mean, no one's looking to invest this kind of money in a franchise to, to break even or to lose money. So, so that's a very big aspect of, you know, the due diligence that you should be doing, but it's only one aspect. And some of the other aspects are maybe not quite as tangible in terms of, you know, being able to put dollar amounts on them, but you know, how are you spending your time as the business owner? Uh, and I think the culture of the franchise as well. I mean, that's something I'm always coaching the people that I work with to, to really try to get a good feel for. And is this a culture that is going to resonate with you and that you're going to enjoy being a part of? Because that will make a huge difference in terms of not only how happy you are and how much you enjoy the business, it can also have a huge impact on how successful you are because you're able to learn from other franchisees uh, if that is, you know, a, a big part of the culture within that franchise organization. This guy told me about some of the brands he was considering and some of the are brands that I know well that I wouldn't go anywhere near. One of them was a quick service chain where um, it was a franchisee association that brought me in and just continued to complain about their franchisor. When I asked about what topic they're looking for, they kept complaining. And I'm like, you got to give me something to say to your franchisees so they know right. what to do. And I, they were brainstorming ways to get their CEO fired. I mean, the wow. culture of this organization was, and they weren't paying attention to their own Yelp reviews, which weren't so great. And Sounds so, a little toxic. I, I, well, there's a lot of franchise brands that are like that. And many of these brands actually rank quite high on some of the franchise lists that are there that don't necessarily take culture into consideration, which exactly. is why when I have people who are asking me for help selecting a franchise, it's not my place. I don't know their values, but if they work with a broker or a consultant or someone like you, um, and I appreciate the opportunity for you to plug my services, but I'll take a moment to plug yours. It's just, it's so important to have someone who knows what those questions are they should be asking and who can guide them and, and help them, you know, get have some good considerations and also maybe help them exercise some caution when they're not picking up on those things. But yeah. so what you say about culture is so vitally important. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 for me, that's more important than are you even interested in what they sell? The question is how Agreed. are they together as a group? That's yeah. me, priority number one. Agreed. And, and thank you for, for that. But yeah, I mean, for me, when I start working with someone, stop number one is how do you want to spend your time? A lot of people want to jump right into, hey, I want a quick service restaurant or I want to get into the fitness industry. or And I'm like, Oh, before we talk about any specific businesses or even what industry you want to be in, let's figure out what's your vision. What are you trying to accomplish through owning a franchise? How do you want to spend the majority of your time as the franchise owner? And, you know, what are some of the key characteristics of a business model that are going to be most appealing to you or what would not be appealing to you. Let's get clear on all of that first, and then we can go out and look at some franchises that meet all of that criteria, save you a lot of time, and potentially a mistake by eliminating the companies that don't meet this criteria. Because there's a lot of different business models within franchising and a lot of different ways that a franchise owner could end up having to spend their time in order to be successful. And you know that's gonna look different for, for each person in terms of what, what is gonna be most ideal for them. And that's counterintuitive for, for a lot of the people that I work with to start there. But I can just tell you from experience, that's the, the better way to start versus, you know, hey, I want to be in the pizza business. So let's go look at, you know, what's the hottest new pizza franchise out there. 
Right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think those things beneath the surface are really what matters will determine how successful someone's going to be and and how long they're going to last doing it. Yeah, because burnout's a real thing. Um, well, I, you know, I, I could talk on this topic uh, for hours with you, but I want to make sure we get into some other things as well and take advantage of, of your expertise while I have you. So, you know, this may be kind of a broad question. And, and, you know, if you read the book, you go into a lot of detail, you know, in the book, obviously on this, but, you know, for the audience listening in, I mean, in, in your experience, I mean, you know, what are some of the kind of universal traits that wealthy franchisees possess that maybe, you know, some of the less successful franchisees don't possess? So the whole book is about that. So I'll try to answer it. <laughs> right. Briefly, with just three really, really big things, okay. and I'll try to add some insights for each. The first thing that wealthy franchisees have in common is the ability to maintain a clear head. That mm. they understand that is an emotional experience, and they feel those emotions, but they keep their emotions and all that, you know, all those thoughts in check. So, you know, something happens, they're triggered, they're upset. They wait, they calm down, they breathe, meditate, take a walk, drink alcohol, you know, whatever, whatever you got to do <laughs> yep, to chill out. Whatever you got to do. They get themselves calm first before they make decisions. I, yes. as, even though I used to be a motivational speaker and people expect me to preach positive attitude, I really don't. I think if what you have going for you in franchising is positivity and that's all you have without substance, you're in trouble and you're going to make some <laughs> bad business decisions. I, talk, yeah. I was interviewing this one franchisee. I said, so tell me how your business is going. And he says, well, you know how most businesses close in the first year? We're open 18 months, so must be going well. And I thought, this guy has no idea what he's doing. Like, God. he might be going yeah. debt. You know what I mean? Right, but he's positive. <laughs> that's positivity, but that's not what's going to drive in customers, solve problems, inspire employees. So, and I sure Great don't point. preach negativity. What I preach is clarity, the ability mm. to clear your head and be objective and make data-driven decisions. So, for example, uh, I have this glass of water right here. The optis, optimist would say the glass is? Half full. Right, the pessimist says it's half empty. Okay, the wealthy franchisee, so the glass has four ounces of water. It's, it's objective. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, like, so they clear their heads so they can make smart, responsible decisions and not have knee-jerk reactions. You know, this pandemic, there's three problems to it. The biggest and most important one is the health one. Sure. There's the financial problem, but the one no one's talking about is the mess so many people are making through knee-jerk, emotion-based, fear-based reactions to their circumstances. Yeah, the head they're trash. Have, they're, the head trash. They're going to have to sweep that up. So yeah. wealthy franchisees are really good about acknowledging that they have head trash, but then they clear it out before they take action. Yeah, you saw me chuckling as you started talking about this, and I'm going to at least make sure my wife listens to those last like two minutes because I think she gets sick and tired of me saying, hey, take a few deep breaths don't get emotional about it. And, you know, then she sometimes just wants to like pick up a glass half full of water and throw it at me because she's sick of me uh, reminding her of this all the time. But it's, it's such a good point. I mean, you need to be decisive as a business owner, but you don't want to be making those decisions based on emotion. You need that clarity. It's so important. Sure. Having said that, I'm going to give you some marital advice. <laughs> Never tell your wife to take a deep breath. Yeah, Unless I know. you teach her how to swim before going underwater. <laughs> yeah. Telling someone to calm down has never resulted in someone calming down. That's how you're going to wind up sleeping on the couch. In yeah, fact, it's a fair point. I, you know, here's the thing. I tell franchisees to control your own emotions, but also understand that your employees and your customers still have theirs. You keep mm. yours in check, 
but then you have empathy for the emotions and the thoughts of everyone else. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so you keep yourself calm and clear, but at the same time you be supportive of other people. But uh, yeah, good luck with telling her to take that deep breath. Um, so yeah, in fact, maybe I just won't have her listen to this episode at all. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> or, unless you want to say something very loving and then, then go for it. So um, yes, the, uh, the, the woman behind the man. That's right. So, so keeping a clear head, it's, it's so important. And it's something that a lot of people dismiss. They think that now we're getting into like, you know, soft skills and the touchy-feely stuff. And they don't realize that because of the way they think, they might be a liability to their own business and not an asset. Mm. So we really yeah. need to stop and reflect on our thoughts and our emotions and keep them in check and be objective. That's the first thing I see them do. The second thing that I see them do, honestly, is they stick to the system. Yeah. The wealthy franchisees I've interviewed, they're, they're not particularly creative or innovative. They're not interested. They've outsourced that. That's why they bought the franchise. Mm -hmm. They have other people take those risks and do the experiments and figure it out. And when they do get ideas, they don't go rogue. They discuss with the franchisor and see if there's a way that it works system-wide. But really, they stick to the system. They bought yeah. a franchise to mitigate risk, to yeah. do something that works. Well, as soon as you deviate from the system, you're exposing yourself to the same risk that you paid to mitigate. Exactly. So, exactly. And, here's the, and by the way, this is a hard point. When I'm on stage in front of a fran franchisees, that tip is not always well received because it's like me saying, hey, fall in line, right? right. Exactly. Totally, yeah. Do what you're told to a bunch of people who got into business because they want to have freedom, but that's, it's not how a franchise works and it doesn't make sense. In edible arrangements, they were not always right, but they were usually right. And so I realized if I could be wrong with them some of the time, I could be right with them a lot of the time. And that's the best way to hedge my bet. So that's the second thing is just stick to the proven system. Maybe, yeah. just, you know, reach for higher standards, but don't deviate from the branded ways of doing things. Well, and, and like you said, you know, if you do have an idea of, hey, maybe we could do this a little bit different, instead of going rogue, go talk to the franchisor because they may come back and say, hey, that's a great idea. We're going to give you some additional resources to go try that. Or maybe we'll have a handful of other franchisees kind of pilot this with you. Let's see if this really does work or they may come back and say, Hey, we've actually already tried that before and this is what happened. And so you save yourself a lot of time, probably some money. And uh, so I, I am a big fan of franchisors that encourage their franchisees to innovate while following the system. So I think there's kind of this fine line of, you know, having a very good proven system and franchisees should follow it but at the same time, a franchisor realizing that, you know, hey, it shouldn't be so rigid that, you know, no one, you know, can, can think independently. Uh, you know, you don't want a bunch of robots as franchisees. But, you know, 100% agree with, with this. Follow the system. It blows my mind how many people buy franchises and then from day one just think that they know better and they throw the playbook to the wind. So, yeah, 100% uh, follow the system. If you're going to spend the money to, to do a franchise, follow the system. Also, always remember the exit plan. The exit plan is to sell the business for a lot more than you put into it. Well, yeah. the value of your business is directly related to the perception of the brand. So that brand consistency needs to be there. If you go rogue, everyone's going rogue. Yep. The brand is going to go down. So anything you do, it has to be something that all franchise locations can do. Otherwise, it's going to harm the brand because of that consistency problem, and you're going to—it's not going to work for you in the long run. So, yeah, a, a franchise point. with a good culture gets ideas from franchisees and really considers yep. them. Um, but in that same great culture, franchisees understand that they can't just do 
whatever they want, and that's not the reason to get into franchising. So exactly. That, so that's yep. the second thing. Stick to the system. The third one, and it's a pretty broad one, but it's important. It's it's a philosophy that directly translates into execution of systems. Mm. Use your business to improve the lives of everyone it touches. Every encounter you have, whether it's with your vendors, definitely with your employees, and most certainly with your customers and your community, wake up in the morning asking, how can I use my business to improve other people's lives? Mm. It's about putting value out in the world in every direction, understanding that that has a boomerang effect. Yep. You take care of the community, they're going to come to you. Take care of your customers, they're going to come back and talk about you. Take care of your employees, they'll be able to work independently, giving you more free time, and they'll create better customer experiences. So always ask yourself, how can I just give, love, serve, and put value out there, understanding that that is going to come back to you. Now, if you're someone who wants to make a difference in the world, that's what you should do. If you're greedy and all you want to do is make money, it's still what wealthy franchisees do that makes them more money. So, you know, whether you're an evolved person who cares you know, about spiritual things in the world or you're just someone who's just out to make a buck, either way, the tactics are the same. Right. Put value yeah. out in every direction, elevate everyone. That's the best way to elevate the business. Well, it's great advice. I think it also makes it easier, you know, to push through the challenging times, right? Because if you've got that kind of bigger purpose driving you, um, you know, it, it maybe helps with some of the clarity that we talked about. Um, yeah. You know, I, I used the example of pool works earlier. It's a client mm -hmm. of mine. When the pandemic started, you know, they were still able to, you know, they got to believe they got themselves um, essential service status, mm -hmm. um, but they knew they were going to people's homes, people who couldn't leave their homes. And so what a lot of locations started doing was they started calling their clients saying, hey, we're coming tomorrow to clean the pool, but since we're coming, can we pick up some groceries for you or anything that you wow. need? Now, very few people took them up on that, but think of the goodwill that's there. Oh, Absolutely. Where the franchisee is saying to the client, I don't just see you as a source of revenue. I see you as a fellow human being yeah. and I care and I can make a difference. And so I want to, that's how you get a customer for life. That's awesome. That, yeah, that, that's a great example and, and a very cool story. So I'm curious, uh, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, with Poolworks, did that idea come from a franchisee or from the franchisor? I heard about it from the franchisor, uh, who's a, a friend of mine, and they've also hired me to speak. I don't sure. know where I don't know where it uh, originated, though. Yeah, just curious, uh, you know, along the lines of what we were just discussing. So, but yeah, great example, and you know, I love these three points, and you go into a lot more, you know, detail in the book. Um, you know, the other thing that you hit on a little bit in the book is you talk about kind of some. I guess myths or, or maybe misconceptions about why franchisees are successful. So, I mean, what are, what are maybe some, some common misconceptions that uh, people may have in terms of what makes a franchisee successful? By far, the biggest myth is that it's about location. I know in <laughs> thank real estate, you. Yes, in real thank estate, you. they say location, location, location. And I, I, I get that. I say in franchising, it's service, service, service. I think there's a lot of people who fancy themselves as great business people when really they got lucky with a good lease in a really hot location. They don't know what they're doing, but it's only because of the location that they're, they're doing well. What I found about these wealthy franchisees who I've interviewed and met is most of them have locations that are good enough. That the really fantastic locations might be really expensive or they just might not be available. They take a good enough location and then they make it great 
by understanding what they need to bring to it, how to inspire their employees and how to serve customers. And people travel farther to go to those locations that provide a higher level of service. I had, and a great example, one person I interviewed in the book, um, Burke Jones is a multi-unit franchisee with the UPS store. Uh, over the years, I think he's had four or five locations bought and sold. He took a, a bought a location, pre-existing, wasn't performing especially well, very mediocre in terms of its demographics and its geography, but he created great customer service, really had the right mindset, and he made it the number one location in the entire system. Wow. Then he did it again. He acquired a second location that not only was it mediocre in terms of location, but it was two doors down from a FedEx office store. The direct competition <laughs> was right there. Yeah. Doing the same thing, he made it number one in the system. Wow. Every established franchise brand has multiple stories of people yep. who took a mediocre or poor location, ran it better, and got a better result. Yep. So, um, you know, I don't, I, so that's just a huge myth. It's all about the territory location. It is. Good enough is good enough if you're willing to run it well. And the second location we took over was really, you know, bad. Um, <laughs> we, we made it great. And yeah. Yeah. because the rent was cheap, it actually was really profitable. The gross sales weren't as much as my first store, but the profit was fantastic because we were go. saving so much on rent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I, I run into it all the time. Uh, and I've seen it as well where, you know, an underperforming franchisee, oh, it's my market. You know, my uh, people in this area just think everyone thinks their, their market is unique in some way. Uh, I've noticed this is now my area is different. People aren't gonna, people don't think that way here. They're not gonna another franchisee that's successful in another market comes in, takes over same results as what they're getting in their other market. And the, the interesting thing to me is, is, you know, when I see it, it usually happens pretty quick. It's, it can usually be a relatively quick turnaround, especially if that franchisee knows exactly, you know, what some of the issues are and, and, you know, has already identified that. So, uh, I love that. It's, it's definitely a myth. Well, and I experienced the receiving end of it. You know, my first location of edible arrangements was sort of on the border of West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And so other franchisees would hear that and think, oh, Beverly Hills. So, Scott, you must be racking in the money. Yeah. As if people in Beverly Hills got rich because they spend money all the time or as <laughs> if they want to cater their fancy weddings by having fruit baskets to all the tables that look like it – it's not a fancy product, right? right. Yeah. So our typical client wasn't some woman coming in in a fur coat stepping out of her Mercedes. <laughs> that wasn't the client at all. And the people made that assumption. They didn't look at our Yelp reviews. They didn't look at all the things we did after hours to inspire our employees. They didn't yeah. look at all those things. It was easy. And honestly, it was lazy for them to make the assumption that it was just location. And the problem yeah. with being lazy and not asking the right questions is then you're not going to learn what actually works. So, um, so that's the first one. The second myth is that people who are successful in franchising are workaholics. They're doing it all themselves and they're there day and night, you know, 24-7, all the time. They don't take big, it's simply not true. Yep. In the beginning, you have to put in the time when you're because you're learning and you're having to figure things out and saving money, whatever you can. But what I notice is that these franchisees, as quickly as possible, they train others to be great. They train management and they replace themselves. They stop focusing on operational tasks. They focus on growth tasks. And that's so important the way they manage their time. And so, um, so these people, they own all kinds of locations but they take vacations and they go out to dinner and they go to the daughter's volleyball game and their son's baseball game and they have lives because they work smart. They are not slaves. They're business. That's a myth. They're working um, on their business, not in their business. Right. 
And, and usually it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both, but, but mostly it's working on their business, constantly yep. thinking, how can I replicate myself? If I can pay someone else to do something, I should do that to free me to do something that is harder, more valuable, um, or, you know, it's going to get better results. Um, another myth, um, I guess it's sort of two myths that go together. I hear people say, well, they're successful because they have more business experience or because they have more education. Mm-hmm. So let's look at this first one, uh, second one, education. I did college tours with my son a few months ago, believe it or not, live college tours. And uh, we met with a professor from a business school um, because my son was thinking about maybe majoring in business. And she showed us the curriculum, all the classes that he would take. And it's like, you know, managerial theory and statistics, all these things, you know, which are fine, which are great. But there was nothing there about what to do when your employees ghost. How do you handle an angry customer? Like all those things that are really like in the weeds on the ground kind of so stuff. So true. Yeah. Right. So, and there's a place for business in, in academia. Absolutely. I think there's great value there, but I wouldn't say that necessarily gives you an edge for running a small business. So, Agreed. Okay, and, and most franchisors will tell you that their top franchisees aren't necessarily the ones with the most education or anything like that. So, right. That's one. And then the other part of that is, well, they have a lot of business experience. Well, business experience, if it's translatable, is great. If you understand managing people, if you understand bookkeeping, you understand mm-hmm. marketing, these things are great. But just as common is you have someone who has a lot of experience in a very different environment, say a corporate environment, and they look at you know QSR and they think, oh, it's small business. And they're very condescending. They yeah. think because they were honestly an employee of a big business, that they know what it takes to run a small business. Yeah. I'm not going to knock what they're doing. Sure. You know, if they're a, a vice president of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's yeah. something different. Like you might be a rocket scientist. That doesn't mean you're qualified to be a brain surgeon. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. Running a small business is very different. And so what, what a lot of franchisors tell me is these people with a lot of business experience have a lot of time letting go mm-hmm. of their ways of doing things and embracing right. this system. Um, one of the people I interviewed in the book was Paul D'Amico from Global Franchise Group, who's just a superstar in the franchise world. And he says, um, when I first interviewed him, he was with um, a different food concept. He said they would not sell to doctors or lawyers. They can invest, but he didn't want them anywhere near the restaurants because they have a hard time in just embracing the system because they're bringing something from a completely different environment. So yeah. that stuff's a myth. The education experience, you just don't need that. A lot of franchisees are killing it. It's like one of the first professional things they've done, but they're willing to listen, work hard, make other people's lives better, keep a clear head. Um, and, and they follow the system. Follow the system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I love, you know, these myths that you kind of bust in the book and, and uh, you know, just talk to us about here because I run into them all the time. Um, and, and they're simply not true. Uh, you know, and I, I've seen the same with people, you know, coming into a franchise thinking that, you know, my experience is I'm overqualified, you know, to do this is almost, you know, kind of what you get from them. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had people that are like, look, I've managed teams of, you know, hundreds of people. I think I can handle managing a team of four or five people. That's actually, in many cases, a lot harder <laughs> than managing hundreds of people where you have, you know, layers of management underneath you, creating a culture with a, a very small team. Yeah, that's that's a different ballgame. 
And those people who are managing, you know, scores or hundreds of people, they probably also have access to a legal department, <laughs> HR department, structures. They An executive assistant. <laughs> executive assistant. And they themselves are probably getting feedback from an employer above them. All yeah, those true. structures are in place. You run a franchise, you're, the, you're at the top. No one's giving you feedback. And you're your own HR department. You're your own marketing department. You're, you're all that without the same amount of structure and support. So yeah, you know, having all that support for a larger team um, is, it's, I'm not gonna say it's easier or harder, but it's, it's different, different yep. than you being the person in charge. Yeah, well again, love that and, and thank you for, for busting those myths and I'm probably also gonna clip like this last five minute segment and just have an email template where, you know, anytime I talk to some of these folks with preconceived notions, hey, do me a favor, listen to this and then let's talk again. Uh, that'll be very helpful for me. Um, I want to talk about the franchisor for a minute. Um, what role does the franchisor play in this? Because, you know, just like you said, you've seen franchisees that would say, hey, I'm not successful or as successful, but it's my market or it's my location. Uh, we've already kind of talked about the fact that that's not accurate. What about a franchisee that's maybe not as successful that says, well, if the franchisor just supported me better, I would be more successful. Uh, I mean, what, what role does the franchisor play in, you know, whether or not a franchisee can become wealthy? Well, that franchisee is right. If the franchisor did more, if the franchisor did other marketing, if the franchisor paid their bills, if the <laughs> franchisor stood outside and pulled customers in. Yeah, that'd be great. Franchisor did other hiring for them. Yeah. Um, so you have to, that's why you have to read your franchise agreement. So you really understand what is the role of your franchisor. Uh, a couple months ago, I spoke to a, a home inspection franchise and I, in my interviews, I interviewed one guy who's really struggling and he's a solopreneur. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, the re whole reason I bought a franchise is so the franchisor would do the marketing and sales. They would send me the business and I could just do home inspections. Why would they do that? You would be an employee. They'd hire someone. Well, if that's, what he, if that's what he wanted, he should just work for someone. And I'll guarantee it's not in the, certainly not in his franchise agreement. I think it's highly unlikely they actually told him that would be the case. Like, it's sure. possible, but I think it's highly unlikely. He didn't read it. They're required to do what's in the franchise agreement. Now, sometimes the development people who are selling franchises, they might sort of exaggerate it. I mean, they're salespeople like anyone else, yeah. but it's all there in ink what their job is. So when it comes to providing the human support and in terms of helping you keep a clear head. Um, they're not as good at that. Number one, a franchisor is gonna focus on operations. How do you make cheeseburgers? How do you facilitate in-home senior care? How do you um, not only provide extermination services, but sell them? That's mm -hmm. what they're experts on, that's what they know about. Um, they're not necessarily experts in personal growth and experts in psychology and all this kind of people stuff. So it may not occur to them, they may not be experts, they just maybe don't know how to do it, but most importantly, it's just not in the franchise agreement. So some franchise systems are better than others about sure. culture and encouraging these things. And I will tell you that those who are tend to be my clients. They're the ones who bring me to speak, who buy my book. Um, I have this course for franchisees and I just reached an agreement this week. I have a franchisor who's now going to have all new franchisees go through my course. Yeah. So from the very beginning, they have their mindset in the right place. So there are some franchisors who it is a priority and you can imagine that they do a much better job, but for the most part, that's not gonna be the case. But I will say this, um, Wes, this is, this is important. If you have to choose between a franchisor who provides great operations and support, but doesn't do a lot of stuff with the mindset piece, 
or a franchise or can be very supportive, but the operation isn't so great, go with the one with the great operation. Yeah, Because agreed. the human stuff, you, there are other resources that can help you. And in fact, I can recommend one book. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, are other places, there are other places to get that. What you need from your franchisor is the operation. On your own, you can manage the human stuff. So yeah. they can do agree. more, but most of them don't. And it's not part of the franchise agreement. Yeah. And that's, so, I mean, to your point, you know, understand what's in the agreement, right? Because that's, that's a legal document that lays out very clearly what the franchisee is responsible for, what the franchisor is responsible for. But it's also another reason that you got to talk to franchisees when you're doing your due diligence and you have to ask the right kind of questions because in doing that, you're going to pick up on a lot of these things that we're talking about. You're going to pick up on, you know, what sets apart the most successful franchisees. And, you know, when I'm working with people uh, and they're going through this, you know, I, I refer to it as validation, right? They're validating everything that they're hearing from the franchisor to make sure that it's actually what the franchisees experience in real life. Uh, you, of course you want to talk to franchisees that are having success, right? Why wouldn't you? You can learn a lot from them, but I always recommend, Hey, talk to people that are, you know, maybe average or kind of middle of the road. Talk to some people that are struggling a little bit or that struggled early on and have found a way to turn it around because you're going to learn a lot from them as well. Uh, but Anyways, talking to the franchisees, you're going to get a good sense because a lot of times franchisors will go above and beyond what the franchise agreement requires them to do, right? Uh, bringing you in as a speaker, having new franchisees go through your course is a great example of that. You're going to learn that from the franchisees, right? But more importantly, if you go through it the right way and ask the right types of questions, there should not be any surprises on the back end of signing a franchise agreement in terms of what you're responsible for as the franchisee. There should be no I, surprises. I agree. Those validation calls are really important. I do encourage franchisees, and franchisors aren't always so psyched when I suggest this, but to go beyond the names that they give you. Yeah, you know, agreed. To say, hey, if a franchisor says, here, call these franchisees, that's like, you know, say, hey, can you, you know, give me some references? Well, you're not going to give a name of someone who hates you. Yeah. <laughs> so the franchisees, they're going to get, you know, they're, they're people who are happy. Now, there's still reason to talk to them. Um, Definitely. But the kind of questions, whether you're talking to the names that they give you or you just go meet some other franchisees, avoid asking questions that it's just about that established franchisee's opinions. They don't necessarily have the same value. So if you say, do you enjoy it? What do you care if they enjoy it? You don't know what their values are. You don't know right. how they spend their time. You want to ask questions that are going to have more objective answers, such mm -hmm. as what does the franchisor do to encourage culture mm -hmm. or yep. what kind of um, what kind of marketing support does the franchise or how many hours a week do you find that it's required? How much money did it really take to get you open? Exactly. We're going to get more objective answers because otherwise they're just going to give their opinion. If you say, do you like it? It's not yeah. really useful information. Um, so you just, you know, be careful what you're asking for because the information is only as good as the source. So you talk to someone who's miserable, they might complain, which isn't necessarily things you'd complain about, but you want to look for more objective information. Maybe you find out what, what are they complaining about? What are they struggling? Where are they struggling? And ask yourself, would that bother me? Or is there another perspective here? Or that's a problem they have. 
but I think I could solve that problem. That's yeah. what you're listening for. Yeah, spot on. I mean, I do a lot of coaching around this because I've just seen it too many times where people go in and, you know, number they're unorganized with their questions. They're all over the place and they're just not asking the right types of questions to really get any substance or anything of value that's going to help them decide, you know, is this franchise the, the right business for me to, to invest in myself? So, no, that is, uh, that is spot on. So, um, you know, I, I have a, can I add, can I add one, more, one more thing there, please. Yeah. And I would say this is true when you're interviewing, you know, job candidates, but certainly when you're doing validation phone calls is be careful of your confirmation bias, which is where you want the answers to be something like you yeah. really want to like the franchise. So you start asking questions that lead the person to validate that. I remember one of yeah. my first job interviews, I had someone says, Hey, you know, it's really important. You're organized. So you're real organized, right? Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, like yeah. she, she basically told me what the answer was. So yeah. make, make you sure that you keep a clear head and that your, your questions aren't appealing to any biases that you have. Yeah. So, oh, that's, that's a really good point as well. Um, so on this note and, and I want to respect your time. So we'll, we'll wrap this up here uh, soon, but I, I want to get your thoughts on this because I have a mentor uh, in franchising, he's owns quite a few different franchise businesses as a franchisee. He's actually uh, CEO uh, of a franchisor now, uh, but he has this saying, and I, it's always kind of resonated with me. He says, "You know, the the as a franchisee, the franchisor can never keep me from being successful. They can only help me be more successful." So I'm, I'm curious if in your experience, if you agree with that statement or not. I do. And, and look, while you might find some exceptions, I think sure. for the most part, um, franchisors are giving people a basic foundation. They're giving people the tools and the instructions to succeed. But ultimately, it's up to the franchisee to take advantage of those things um, and then bring something else to it. Yeah. So um, they're there to give you a blueprint. They're there to give you tools. But ultimately, it's on you. Um, for me, that was the appeal. That's where I got to, you know, it's like they're giving you a color, they're giving you the crayons, they're giving you a coloring book, but now you get to kind of come in and start doing the coloring. For me, that's, that's the fun piece. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's generally on the franchisee. Yeah. Agreed. Best analogy I've ever heard is it's, it's like a bicycle, right? So the franchisor's role is to build the bike, right? And, uh, depending on the, you know, what the, purpose of the bike is, you know, you want to buy a bike that has all the bells and whistles and it's, you know, built really well and it's, you know, got a sleek design. So it has the ability to go really fast, but it doesn't matter how nice the bike is. If no one gets on it and pedals it, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. So it's the franchisee's role to get on the bike and pedal. And if you just kind of, you know, half-ass pedal, then, you know, you'll go a little bit, but it's not going to be anything spectacular. But when you get on a really nice bike and you pedal your ass off, then it's going to go really far and really fast. And that was, that was, uh, I guess an analogy that always kind of re resonated with me with franchising. I thought it was, uh, was a good example of that, but. Um, Watson, the uh, CEO of tropical smoothie cafe uses that exact analogy. I've heard him say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good one. So, well, look, uh, talk to us a little bit more about this online course because I want to make sure people know where they can learn more about that uh, if it's something that might be of interest to them. And also make sure, uh, I'm sure it's on Amazon because that's where, where I got my copy, but anywhere else people might be able to find your book. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold. About a month ago, I went to a Barnes & Noble for the first time since the pandemic yeah. and actually found my own book on the shelves. I moved it to a better shelf. But uh, 
it, it is available wherever books are sold, so you can order it there. Um, but what ended up happening was a lot of people you know, read the book and they were reaching out to me wanting to go even deeper. Mm -hmm. And so I have developed for people who are really serious about wanting to be great franchisees um, and who want to take it to the next level. It's called the Wealthy Franchisee Business Breakthrough Program. So it's meant for very busy franchisees who um, are working hard, they're doing okay, but maybe they feel kind of stuck. They're just not sure what they can do to take it to the next level. So mm -hmm. based on the book, but much deeper, um, I take people through a 14-week program where there's instruction, you know, some videos and some things to read, some exercises to do, but most importantly, it's a guided process of action to take in your business mm. so you can start making more money, having, you know, uh, you know, be in control of your time and quality of life. So some people want a roadmap, but some people really want a guide. Yeah. So this course, it's self-paced, but it's all about giving people tools and facilitating a st you know, structure for them to take action to start making more money and growing their business. So um, I've already launched it and it's really doing well. People are really excited and getting a lot of value. The book goes very deep. But the intention of the course is to be able to move forward fast. Sure. So actually, I minimize it. It's just the information you need to get immediate results. So if you want to get results and grow your business, um, it might be something for you. Uh, yeah. So there's a, it's called, so please, if anyone's interested, go to thewealthyfranchisee.com. Um, and all the information's there and you can enroll there. But it's truly an investment that will pay off big time um, if you're willing to, to go through the program. Excellent. We'll make sure to post that in the show notes as well to make it easy for people to find, but I'm going to definitely check it out. I'm glad to hear that, you know, even franchisors are, you know, looking to partner with you because I think it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, maybe a brand new franchisee as part of their onboarding or training goes through uh, your course. I mean, it sounds like that would make a lot of sense for the franchisee, but also for the franchisor. So um, we'll definitely get that posted in the show notes. So, um, you know, quickly, uh, if you've got another minute, I do a lightning round uh, at the end of each of my episodes. This is the same four questions that I ask every guest that comes on. So this is kind of my way of doing some of what you've done, which is, uh, you know, compiling answers from all the amazing, interesting people that I talk to, to the same types of questions. Um, so if you're okay with it, we can maybe run through this lightning round real quick. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. First question of the lightning round is simply, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? And that could be business advice or general life advice. For me, it's both. It's from my wonderful wife, uh, who during a time I was having a really, really bad day and I was just in total despair. She said, you know what? Just get through today. Mm. Help me kind of compartmentalize it, make it less overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, I've used that and advised other people with that so many times, um, as opposed to saying, take a deep breath. So keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. I'm going to use that for sure. Uh, and maybe I won't get so many, uh, you know, glaring looks from across the room. Uh, perfect. I love it. Uh, next question is just, do you have any sort of a morning routine? Anything that you try to do to prime yourself in the morning for a successful day? I try to get up before the sun and more, more importantly, before my kids <laughs> and have a quiet cup of coffee. And I stop and think, I make my list Yep. Um, I go through phases with meditation. I like to say I do it every day. I go through phases Same. of meditation. Same. So that, if I'm going through phases, that's when I'll do it and just kind of just take in the day and get myself organized. Then the kids wake up and then it's all over. Yep. Um, so yeah, but it starts with that, that wonderful cup of coffee. Yep, agreed. And I think the quiet time in the morning is important. And, and uh, if you have kids, definitely uh, important to get up before them if you want to have any, any quiet time. Um, We've talked about your book, but I'm curious uh, what book you might be reading right now. 
right now I'm reading a work of fiction. It's an old classic by James Michener called The Source. It's really okay. thick and long. It's great to be reading during the pandemic. Like great in a, like probably sh- scare the crap out of you kind of way? No, great. It's just, it's, it's deep and it's interesting. It's really long. So you okay. can like really kind of sing. Oh, I, I got you. Great. Cause extra time maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I was reading Atlas Shrugged uh, kind of right as the pandemic started and um, you know, that kind of got me thinking a little bit just based on, you know, some of the things that were going on in, in our country at that time. But um, final question is, what is your definition of freedom and are you living it? Yes. Uh, to me, freedom is having choices, uh, especially when you wake up in the morning. What am I going to do today? That's, that's what it means to me is having, having choices. I love it. Well, Scott, hey man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you and I connected. I've learned a lot from you reading your book and the conversations that we've had. Thank you for making time to drop in on the path to freedom podcast with me. And, um, definitely will put your book information, your course information so that anyone out there that's interested can, you know, learn more from you and connect with you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know when a new episode is released. You can also check me out on my website at www.path2frdm.com. And if you want more information about franchising or just want to say hello, feel free to contact me at Wes at Path2FRDM.com. Thanks again. Now go drop in.